Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 86, Being in Space. Assuming future generations of humanity are going to spend a lot of time exploring the final frontier, there will be a number of practicalities to deal with, some of which involve travelling in space, but most involve just staying alive while you're travelling in space. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, what's the best solution to generate artificial gravity for long-duration space travel? The best, indeed the only current solution to generate artificial gravity, is to spin the part of your spacecraft that contains the crew. But to identify the ideal combination of engineering parameters, such as spin rate, spin radius, and the size of the spinning cabin, you really want to build a combined medical and engineering laboratory in microgravity so you can trial all the possibilities. Until that happens, we are mostly limited to hypothetical considerations. Fortunately, here at Cheap Astronomy, hypothetical considerations are pretty much what we do. The general principle behind generating artificial gravity through rotation can be demonstrated on Earth by filling a bucket of water and swinging the bucket around in a circle, providing you spin it fast enough even when the bucket is upside down, the water doesn't fall out, because the centrifugal force generated by the spin overcomes Earth's gravitation and the water stays in the bucket. This brings us to the first rule of generating artificial gravity. You don't want to generate more than 1g at the maximum diameter of rotation. Assuming you are standing with your feet towards the inner hull of your spacecraft, if you experience much more than 1G, your blood will drain from your head to your feet. A trained fighter pilot can manage up to 9G for short periods before blacking out, but the rest of us would probably black out before we got to 6G. However, if there is just 1G generated at the maximum diameter of rotation, then blacking out won't be an issue. On the Discovery 1 spacecraft, in the movie 2001, we see astronaut Bowman running laps around its circumference, able to do so by virtue of its spin, which generates a radially directed artificial gravity upon him. The fictional Discovery 1 spacecraft was about 16 metres in diameter, so by spinning at about 10 times a minute, it could generate 1G at Bowman's feet, although his head would only be experiencing about 0.75G. Potentially this would confuse his vestibular system, a system within each of your inner ears which helps you know how your body is orientated. Being used to earth conditions, where the g-force at your feet is almost identical to the g-force at your head, your vestibular system can tell your feet how to compensate for any acceleratory forces your head is experiencing. But on a 16-metre diameter rotating spacecraft, your feet would not be experiencing the same acceleratory forces as your head, and so a flailing stumble might eventuate. 
And if you bent over to pick up something from the floor, there'd be a sudden rush of blood to your head. And there's also a problem if astronaut Bowman runs counter to the spin direction, which means he's reducing the angular acceleration, the g-force, acting on his body. Indeed, if he ran fast enough, counter to the spacecraft's spin, he would eventually lift off the floor. For these reasons, an ideal artificial gravity environment is generally thought to have a 100 metre spin radius, which would ensure the 1g at your feet is about the same as at your head, and the linear speed of the floor is so fast that running in either direction would make no real difference to your net angular acceleration. Nonetheless, it is possible that our sensory and physiological systems could adapt to the smaller Discovery 1's environment, and we'd just get by by moving around very carefully. Again, until we properly test what's physically and physiologically possible, we just don't know. All that said, we have actually tested something, at least on a small scale, in a short time frame. A centrifuge designed to spin humans and assess their vestibular responses flew aboard the Space Shuttle Neurolab mission STS-90 in 1998. This experiment was the first and only proper in-flight evaluation of the effect of artificial gravity on astronauts. The results suggested that a centrifugal force of 0.5g generated for 20 minutes every other day during the 16-day space mission was able to reduce the cardiovascular deconditioning that's commonly seen in zero-g spaceflight. So maybe we don't have to spin spacecraft after all. We could just take a human-rated centrifuge along for the ride. But again, without testing this properly, we just don't know. So, want to land on Mars in the 2030s? Start testing now. This is the middle bit. The brief testing of STS-90's human centrifuge is hardly definitive proof of its effectiveness, and with your head at the centre and your feet at the circumference, the rotation would drain blood from your head to your feet. But if you're just lying in the thing and watching a movie or something, maybe that draining would usefully counteract some of the effects of microgravity. But now, let's deal with a myth about space travel that's both long-standing and a bit strange. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what is the smell of space? It's now widely acknowledged that after astronauts have closed the airlock and pulled their helmets off, they experience a faint whiff of something. Whether it is the faint whiff of what space really smells like, or just the smell of more earthly materials being rapidly reintroduced to an oxygenated atmosphere, is yet to be decided. But being cheap astronomy, you can probably guess where we sit on this particular debate spectrum. Let's start by suggesting that if determining the smell of space had the faintest economic or scientific significance, we would have already positioned some chemical sensors around the astronauts' heads just as they were removing their helmets, and thereby capture some objective data on this phenomenon. The fact that no one's ever bothered doing this does suggest that NASA 
and other global space agencies don't see a lot of value in confirming that space is an almost vacuum, so whatever astronauts are smelling is mostly inside a repressurized airlock. If we did want to investigate the human experience of smelling an almost vacuum, we'd have to expose human subjects to an almost vacuum and ask them to take a slow and considered sniff. Unfortunately, those subjects may be too distracted by their sudden inability to breathe to be able to report any useful data. And alas, modern-day research ethics committees tend to frown on these sorts of experiments. We also have to acknowledge the possibility of confirmation bias. If Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin reported smelling something, then every astronaut after them is likely to report that, well, heck yeah, we smelt something too, since the world's two most iconic astronauts had. This is not to say that Neil and Buzz, or any other astronauts, were wrong about there being a smell. It's just that the apparently common smell reported by everyone might not be as common as it seems. Neil and Buzz, in closing the Eagle's airlock, not only brought the almost vacuum lunar atmosphere inside, but also some lunar regolith, which apparently smells a bit like gunpowder. Subsequent Apollo mission explorers would have brought in a whole lot more lunar regolith after days of touring around in the lunar rover. Also, Apollo astronauts would have returned to a low-pressure 100% oxygen atmosphere in the lunar module, while astronauts on the International Space Station return to one atmosphere of air pressure, of which just 21% is oxygen. So it seems unlikely that all astronauts returning from an extravehicular activity really experience the same smell. In any case, when anything that's been sitting in a cold, empty vacuum is suddenly exposed to a warm, pressurised atmosphere containing oxygen, some degree of ionisation and oxygenation will take place on its surfaces. And those chemical processes are likely to elicit odours that are reminiscent of something burnt or of something metallic. So it does seem less likely that astronauts are really smelling space, and much more likely they are smelling chemical reactions taking place on the surfaces of their suits, or from something in the airlock itself, as various materials are rapidly shifted from an almost vacuum to a breathable atmosphere. Again, all this could be easily confirmed through scientific investigation. The first question to answer is whether our sense of smell is really acute enough to detect the few scant atoms and molecules that are present in the almost vacuum of space, and whether we could then genuinely distinguish those few scant components from within the dense breathable atmosphere that refills an airlock. We could easily undertake a chemical analysis of a sample of recently refilled airlocks air, looking for signs of any new components or new chemistry, which may, or may not, be in the range of human aromatic sensitivity. Or why not just do an experiment on us earthbound mortals, using methods any research ethics committee would probably be okay with, so you just ask people to sniff inside an earthbound airlock after it's been evacuated and then refilled, and maybe you could even put an unflown spacesuit in there after it's been sitting out in the sun for a while. 
If those people on Earth report a faint whiff of burnt steak or of something metallic, then it's pretty clear that it's not outer space they're whiffing. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Cheap astronomy's shocking proposal that an almost vacuum will have no smell at all. Although there will be particular smells associated with living and working in space, some of which we've dealt with here, and some of which are best not dealt with at all. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to clear the air, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll exhaust all avenues for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.